Hello and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today we have a relatively informal episode. We're going to be talking through a couple of sections from this serial selection of Bleak House, serials five through eight that we've been dissecting over this second Bleak House week that we've had, second of five that is. We are going to jump right in and literally, as I said, I'll be just talking through these selections with you all as I would a seminar discussion or just me on my own, how I would dissect this section for a an analysis. We've got chapter 21, The Smallweed Family. This is right at the beginning of our section here. Not at the very beginning, obviously, but more towards the beginning. Page 284 in the Barnes & Noble's Classics edition. Quote, in a rather ill-favored and ill-savored neighborhood, through one of its rising grounds, bears the name of Mount Pleasant. The Elfrin Smallweed, christened Bartholomew, and known on the domestic hearth as Bart, passes that limited portion of his time on which the office and its contingencies have no claim. He dwells in a little narrow street, always solitary, shady, and sad, closely bricked in on all sides like a tomb, but where there yet lingers the stump of an old forest tree whose flavor is about as fresh and natural as the small weed smack of youth. So we do start out with a rather bleak description, ill-favored and ill-savored, but it is funny. I mean, it is complete caricature and complete parody from what I can see in the text. We've got this rhyme in the middle of the first bit here, the first phrase, ill-favored and ill-servered neighborhood. The one of its rising grounds bears the name of Mount Pleasant. And of course it's ironic. There's no nothing pleasant that we can tell about this place, and yet it has this ridiculous name applied to it. And <laughs> these, even the name, it, you can look through Dickens and one of the big things that you learn about the way that Dickens characterizes people is he pays great stock and attention to the way that he names characters. And oftentimes, all you need from the character is their name in order to understand what you need to about them. <laughs> so we have Elfrin Smallweed, Kristen Bartholomew, which of course, is a very hoity-toity, dusty old English name. (laughs) And at the same time, the word, if you think about it, small weed, there's this, I have this picture of a diminishing, withered plant, right? Uh, Someone that is not very opposing in stature, someone who is likewise uh, probably not as nourished as they need to be. And that could be spiritually, that could be mentally or socially, that could be physically. There's lots of ways to interpret even that small addition to this character, Smallweed, the name. 
And even the location that small weed is in is dim and narrow. There's lots of diminutives here, right? So we've got little narrow street. We've got two diminutive adjectives in a row and diminutive as in belittling, always solitary. So it's not like he's with a big group of people and uh, he is alone, so he's, he's impoverished in the sense of community it seems like as well shady there's no light it's it's all about lack all of these descriptors sad lack of happiness here closely bricked in on all sides like a tomb how much more desolate can you get and how much more caricatured can you get <laughs> with this guy who's a small weed and he's living in this place that is all lack and no gain but where there yet lingers the stump of an old forest tree, whose flavor is about as fresh and natural as the small weed smack of youth, which we know is not fresh or natural at all. Dickens is being sarcastic here. The stump of an old forest tree. We don't even have the whole tree in this picture, <laughs> which is, again, it's, it's horribly depressing reading descriptions like this, but it's also really funny. Right? Dickens doesn't even give us a whole tree for crying out loud. <laughs> Poor Smallweed doesn't have a whole old forest tree to enjoy. And the tree, furthermore, does not have the fresh or natural smell that it could have. It has this musty, gross smell. Um, and we know, as we continue on in the passage, that the smallweed smack of youth is also <laughs> a euphemistic in some respects because the smallweeds, the young ones, Judith and Bart, had no childhood. They had no youth. There has actually not been youth in this family until the grandmother became weak in her intellect, quote, that's on 285. And so even the older, or even the younger rather, people are quite old and quite lacking in youthfulness, again, with this lack. Uh, and it took an older person weakening in their intellect to give this family some youth. And that's part of the reason why I found this chapter to be particularly difficult as I was walking through it, is it has this very high affected language. And the quality is very dusty and musty because Dickens wants to exaggerate through the omniscient narration what kind of family we are indeed dealing with, which is this, we're dealing with a lineage that is lacking in youth, and so even the archaic language portrays what Dickens needs it to in terms of this family. And so we walk through this whole chapter, and you can see the chapter from, the episode rather, from Thursday to get an overview and some themes and relationships and such from the chapter. But we walk through this with this amazing beginning that I just wanted to highlight quickly, which gives us a sense that even these minor characters, Dickens has a plan for them and he has an amazing sense of exactly how he wants to convey these characters through caricature. And Hopefully we can see, as the plot develops, 
the connections to the court of chancery as well. Of course, Smallweed works in law now, so his family is connected uh, somewhat indirectly at this point. But yeah, this almost this reflection of the court of chancery onto this family and onto these characters. And you can tell that this kind of language is very similar to the language we get at the beginning, the language we get when there's the summer session in the courts, and there's that cyclic nature of these narrators cycling in and out between Esther and the omniscient narrator, and this high affected language versus a more colloquial language at this time, which of course to us is maybe a bit high and affected as well, but um, you can definitely tell the difference between the two. Let's go a bit earlier now uh, to page 254 and 255. There is a description of the rainstorm that Esther and company get caught up in when they are visiting Lincolnshire. This is page 254, ending on page 255. Quote, the weather had been all the week extremely sultry. But the storm broke so suddenly, upon us at least in that sheltered spot, that before we reached the outskirts of the wood, the thunder and lightning were frequent, and the rain came plunging through the leaves as if every drop were a great leaden bead. As it was not a time for standing among trees, we ran out of the wood and up and down the moss-grown steps which had crossed the plantation fence like two broad-staved ladders placed back to back, and made for a keeper's lodge which was close at hand. We had often noticed the dark beauty of this lodge standing in a deep twilight of trees and how the ivy clustered over it and how there was a steep hollow near where we had once seen the keeper's dog dive down into the fern as if it were water. The lodge was so dark within, now the sky was overcast, that we only clearly saw the man who came to the door when we took shelter there and put two chairs for Ada and me. The lattice windows were all thrown open, and we sat just within the doorway watching the storm. It was grand to see how the wind awoke, wind awoke and bent the trees and drove the rain before it like a cloud of smoke, and to hear the solemn thunder, and to see the lightning, and while thinking with awe of the tremendous powers by which our little lives are encompassed, to consider how beneficent they are, and how upon the smallest flower and leaf there was already a freshness poured from all this seeming rage which seemed to make creation new again." Unquote. Wow, there's a lot here. So we begin with these descriptions of the, the weather, and it is quite cyclic, this passage, in the sense that there is intersplicing of comments about the weather, then a bit of dialogue, how these characters are moving through that weather, and then a bit more about the weather, there's sort of a zoom in, if you will, on different aspects of it. And then again, commentary on what's going on in the real world. And then we end with this very high, broad view of, isn't our existence beautiful? From, coming from the moral matronly figure, Esler herself, the person who's almost the harbinger of all of these great tidings and emotions and the harbinger of reasonableness in this novel. We know that when we have Esther around, there's going to be a reasonable opinion, and it's of course mired by her own personal objectives, of which, you know, I would say her objectives are rather unnarcissistic compared to most of the characters in the novel. Um, 
and her own perspective, of course. So we start with a broad view of the weather had been all the week extremely sultry. And then this specific storm. But the storm broke so suddenly that before we reached the outskirts of the wood, the thunder and lightning were frequent. And so we get a really beautiful um, dash. We've, get, we've got these dashes, these M dashes in the middle of the text on page 254 here, upon us at least in that sheltered spot. And so we're talking about the broad view of the storm and we go really narrow into this particular storm. And then we go even narrower within the sentence into these little, this little M dash portion that talks about how the storm affected them. And then we continue with the storm again. Then we zoom out again. And the rain came plunging through the leaves as if every drop were a great leaden bead. I love that description. Zooming in onto every drop of the storm. And that's the end of the first sentence. <laughs> so you can see how masterfully Dickens was able to mediate these different perspectives with punctuation, with this interesting perspective of Esther and how Esther through or how Dickens through Esther is able to punctuate all these things. Um, and through these lush descriptions of what's happening, not only in the broad view of the week, <laughs> right, to the day, to the moment, to the individual drops of rain. As it was not a time for standing among trees, we ran out of the wood. <laughs> I find that so funny because Esther, what she's doing is she's being polite. <laughs> she's uh, kind of diminishing the fact that they're getting rained on and it's quite unpleasant. And every drop is a great leaden bead. That can be quite unpleasant if you're standing in it. And she covers it up with it's probably not a great time for standing among the trees while it's raining <laughs> and there's lightning. And then she continues to talk about their progression out of the wood and into this little keeper's lodge. And she does another comment here. He's pure Esther. We had often noticed the dark beauty of this lodge standing in a deep twilight of trees and how the ivy clustered over it, and how there was a steep hollow near. I love that description because Esther is taking a moment within this very, I would say, quite unpleasant turn of events. They're on this beautiful walk, and then all of a sudden there's these heavy drops of rain, and there's this big storm that's unsafe to be in the woods in. And she takes the moment to say, look at how beautiful this lodge was that we got to step into because of this rain. In other words, not sitting in this well or cesspool of uncertainty and tragedy as Smallweed does, as Richard in some aspects does, but rather looking at the change of events, the change of perspective in this rainstorm as an opportunity to admire more beauty in the world. And so it's, it's a very 
generative view of the situation and there's this beautiful side of we had often noticed the dark beauty of this lodge standing in a deep twilight of trees what a beautiful description so another plot point the lodge was so dark within now the sky was overcast that we only clearly saw the man who came to the door dot 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 the next is an observation of the lodge now that they're inside very fitting in this change of perspective and i love how dickens is building off of slowly uh these different views or perspectives of the lodge in order to place us securely within it so first he sets up the storm and then uh so he he sets up the week right <laughs> sets up the week sets up the storm sets up esther's view of the storm and periodically monitors and checks in with us as we're moving through with the characters through the storm to the lodge. Then he sets up a distant view of the lodge. Oh, we saw this lodge a bunch of times before. It's quite beautiful. And we get an affected opinion of the lodge, right? We get the opinion that it's beautiful, that it's a desirable place to be during this storm. And then now that we're in the lodge, we get to meet the keeper who we don't get much from because it's dark. And then we get, as the light, as they start to adjust to the light and start seeing different details of the lodge, a description of the lattice windows being throw op thrown open. And then they start watching the storm from an entirely new point of view. It was grand to see how the wind awoke and bent the trees and drove the rain before it like a cloud of smoke. How beautiful is that description? That metaphor, or that rather that simile, because it uses the word like. And drove, the wind awoke and drove the rain before it like a cloud of smoke. The rain is one homogenous mass. It's a dense rain. It's a heavy, leaden rain. And it's moving through this space that they're watching like a movie almost through because of this wind and there's thunder we get some other auditory cues and some visual cues the flashes of lightning and then again we see this beautiful opinion that esther brings out here thank you esther and she says quote and while thinking with awe of the tremendous powers by which our little lives are encompassed to consider how beneficent they are and how upon the smallest flower and leaf there was already a freshness poured from all this seeming rage which seemed to make creation new again. So we do get a little biblical allusion here at the end um, about the rain. Even though there's this rage, which in the Old Testament, the rage comes from God punishing sinners, uh, especially in this, uh, the story of the Noah's Ark, for example. This freshness comes from that rage and there's newness and there's that smell. I'm sure uh, if you've ever been to the desert while it's raining, you can smell that creosote, that chemical that's released when you can, uh, when you can palpably sense the rain before it comes. And the desert is awakening because it knows that the rain is coming and it needs the rain and the rain regenerates. <laughs> 
And so there's an interesting contrast of, again, this the violence of the storm that, that they've just escaped with the safety of the lodge, with the newness and the beauty that the rain is bringing. And similarly with the raindrops here, these leaden raindrops, Esther brings up, and how upon the smallest flower and leaf, there was already a freshness poured from all this seeming rage. So she's talking about, again, these small aspects, like these microscopic aspects of the landscape and of the scene that adds so much to our understanding of how she thinks and how she makes every little circumstance into a beautiful one and a powerful one, an important one. And so while we do get a lot from Dickens here, I would say the tone of this passage coming from Dickens is quite reverent. There's almost a gratitude or an indebtedness for the nature of this scene and his ability to write the contrast of the lodge and the scene, for example, or the characters and the lodge and the scene, all three. But we also get the mood of the passage, these descriptive features, these descriptive characteristics of the passage that come from Esther, that come from the text itself and not necessarily from Dickens's actual opinion. And the mood is very peaceable and it's like a, like a dream where Esther is recounting the scene from a distant memory, even though it's not so distant. All right, in our last section for today, pages 306 through 307, this is chapter 22 called Mr. Bucket. This is the scene with Mr. Bucket and Mr. Snagsby in Tom All Alones. We're gonna look at how the place affects the characters, which I love. Quote, when they come at last to Tom All Alones, Mr. Bucket stops for a moment at the corner and takes a lighted bullseye, that is a lantern, from the constable on duty there, who then accompanies him with his own particular bullseye at his waist. Between his two conductors, Mr. Snagsby passes along the middle of a villainous street, undrained, unventilated, deep in black mud and corrupt water, though the roads are dry elsewhere, and reeking with such smells and sights that he, who has lived in London all his life, can scarce believe his senses. Branching from this street and its heaps of ruins are the other streets and courts so infamous that Mr. Snagsby sickens in body and mind and feels as if he were going every moment deeper down into the internal gulf. Draw off a bit here, Mr. Snagsby, says Mr. Bucket, as a kind of shabby palanquin is borne towards them, surrounded by a noisy crowd. Here's the fever coming up the street. As the unseen wretch goes by, the crowd, leaving that object of attraction, hovers round the three visitors like a dream of horrible faces and fades away up alleys into ruins and behind walls, and with occasional cries and shrill whistles of warning, thenceforth flits about them until they leave the place. Are those the fever houses, Darby? Mr. Bucket coolly asks as he turns his bullseye on a line of stinking ruins. Darby, Darby replies that all them are, and further, that in all, for months and months, the people have been down by dozens, 
and have been carried out dead and dying like sheep with the rot. Bucket observing to Mr. Snagsby as they go on again that he looks a little poorly, Mr. Snagsby answers that he feels as if he couldn't breathe the dreadful air. Unquote. That's again page 306. What a desolate scene. So they're in Tomal alone, which of course the name gives us a lot of information there already. It's a colloquial name and yet it says all. And they have to take a lantern because it's already dark, it's after dinner as you'll remember. And there's these two conductors that Mr. Snagsby has, I imagine one on either side of him. And they're leading him with these lanterns along the middle of the street. And the street in the middle, imagine, sometimes there's, in our modern day, there's little pools of water or whatnot on the sides of the street. Sometimes there's potholes on the side of the street. But in the middle of the street, there's standing water, black mud. It's unventilated and undrained. There's lack of sanitation. And Mr. Snagsby, who's been in London, who's lived there his whole life, can hardly believe his senses. He is shocked at the scene that he is taking in. And this is a full sensory scene, right? There's the visual or lack thereof. And you can imagine this bullseye. It's called a bullseye for a reason because the lighting, there's this little crosshatch of metal on the lantern. So you don't get like a even light. You get this big shadow portrayed on the scene in front of you, like a little shadow figure or a hand puppet or something. And Mr. Bucket and this constable are, you know, probably heavily walking into this water, into this mud next to him. It's probably quite difficult to walk through this scene, right? Uh, as they're in the middle of the road, but there's lots of impediments and it's gross and you don't want to necessarily be there, especially not this late at night. There's a smells. They're hearing, I imagine, moans and things. With occasional cries and shrill whistles of warning. There's... Yeah, a crowd that's gathering behind them later in this scene and around them. Uh, quote, like a dream of horrible faces. And they sort of join them and then recede and join and recede. And it's unnameable, the circumstances. For Mr. Snagsby, again, a person who uh, this is his first acquaintance with this side of the place he's lived in his whole life. Mr. Bucket seems unaffected by the place. It seems like he's done business here before. But really our focus, aside from the ostensible what's happening with it, which is Mr. Bucket is leading Mr. Snagsby into Tom All Alone's because Mr. Snagsby is the only one who can identify Joe of the party. Aside from this dialogue that's centered around Mr. Bucket again, we've got really the perceptions of this omniscient narrator getting into Mr. Snagsby's head 
and talking about his perceptions about the scene. It's really interesting in this last paragraph to end here that the Constable Darby <laughs> uh, is report. It's reported speech, right? It's a reported speech by this omniscient, omniscient narrator, and he replies that quote, "All of them are," and unquote, and further that in all for months and months, people quote have been down by dozens unquote, and have been carried out dead and dying quote like sheep with a rot unquote. And so this constable is quoted within this passage that I'm quoting, of course. So there's sort of a double quotation happening at points. And I just imagine, you know, a gruff, almost uncommunicative set of phrases that Dickens, through this omniscient narrator, has woven into a beautiful sentence um, talking about the horrible circumstances of these people. They've been carried out dead and dying like sheep with the rot. That's not really a place that I'm sure Mr. Snagsby thought he would ever go. And a side of London, maybe, that we never thought we would go in this novel. Especially because this place, Tom All Alone's, is the, really the antithesis of the Court of Chancery. The, the High Court, the Lord Chancellor, over all in the middle of the city. I imagine an urban, kind of upkeep, heavy place, shrubberies every once in a while, and the big glass dome over the court building itself. Compared to this desolate, dark, dusty, honestly disgusting part of London. And so, it's Tom All Alone's for me is heightened in its description of disgust and filth, even more so because this book revolves around the Court of Chan Chancery, which is this celebration of high society. And that's the heaviest critique I think that Dickens could give is this compare and contrast between Tom All Alone's and the Court of Chancery, and of course, for me, that's heightened because all of these characters are so intimately drawn up in the Court of Chancery, and it's ongoing trial, of course, Jarndyce and Jarndyce, and so them being there, it's not just, for example, Joe being there, it's Mr. Snagsby and Mr. Bucket on behalf of Mr. Tolkienhorn, all of them three being there, that really makes this distinction clear. All right, well, that is all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed that little chat. I certainly did about the couple sections here in the book splattered throughout the <laughs> fifth through eighth of your serials. In a couple weeks, as I said, we will be going over the next four serials of the Bleak House novel. You can check out our website, relevanceofliterature.com slash home, I think, or just that link. <laughs> It'll take you to the home page. And that the dates and all of that for the next section will be up there, along with links for our past selections. If you have not listened to those yet, I sincerely hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. And I will see you next Monday.
If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.